If you have your Bible, please open it up to Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at Romans 5, verse 5 today. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it will be on page 942. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. We don't even want you to just have to look at it on your phone where there's so many distractions. Uh, to be able to have that, uh, to, to, to sit down and be with the Lord in His Word. Um, and if you're taking that Bible for the first time, go read the book of John first, all right? But let's read together from Romans chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 5, and it's the last verse that we'll be looking at in, uh, in setting our minds on, meditating on, trying to apply to our hearts and lives today. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope, this is where we are today, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Some of you know that I was in Texas for a couple of days this week. I went out there for a family funeral. It was uh, the kind of thing where it seemed like it might be the last chance for that particular part of the family to gather together as the last of a generation had gone to be with the Lord, and so I was really glad to be able to get to go there. But uh, in Texas, one of the things that I was used to growing up was the idea of cattle brands. Now, I didn't grow up on a ranch or anything like that, but it's just kind of all over the place. So you see these things, and you can stick them into a fire, and they heat up, and, and then what, uh, what the rancher will do is take it, and it seems a little cruel, but it's necessary, and they brand the back of that cow or that bull. And when you get that brand on the back of it, then everybody knows where that cow belongs. It goes with this ranch because you can see the brand right there. So if anybody tries to take that cow, it's going to be pretty obvious what has happened there. There's a mark on the outside so that you can be sure which ranch they belong to. Well, how can you be sure that you belong to God? How can you be sure that you belong to God? How can you have assurance? Well, the Bible does present evidences that are on the outside, kind of like a cattle brand. Evidences of a changed life, of a profession of faith, and a profession of repentance, those things that would come out on the outside that Jesus calls fruit, right? Things in words and in actions. But ultimately, ultimately, we have to be branded not just on the outside, but on the inside. As Jesus went about his ministry, one of the big things that he pointed out all the time is that people who appeared to be righteous on the outside, sometimes in their own hearts, were not righteous at all but were like whitewashed tombs. The people didn't know that they were stumbling over dead bodies when they came by them, but God sees the heart. And ultimately, it has to do with the heart. This was not new when Jesus came and did his earthly ministry, this idea, because the Old Testament, God had said, circumcise your hearts. You need not just outward marks of belonging to God, but you need within the heart to belong to God. As Jesus put it, you must be born again. You need to have your heart of stone taken out. You need to have a heart of flesh put in that would turn by the power of the Holy Spirit to love God. 
And that mark on the heart is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's something where God would turn us to love him in Christ, to look to Jesus and love him, to love God in Christ. So what we're going to see today from Romans 5, verse 5, is that believers can stand assured of our eternal salvation by the grace that the Holy Spirit would give us in our hearts. By the grace he would give us in our hearts. As we've come through Romans, we've seen a lot of things, but the last couple of chapters before this, the the second half of chapter 3 into chapter 4, were just this thorough discussion of the doctrine of what we call sola fide. Uh, that's That's a Latin term. You don't have to speak Latin, but it means faith alone or justification by faith alone, standing as righteous and forgiven in the sight of God by faith alone, not by our works that we would add to that faith, not by our deserving, but simply by trusting in the righteousness and the sacrifice of Christ. And when we believe, we have believed because God has worked that faith in our hearts, And it's through that faith alone, with nothing added to it, that God counts us as righteous and forgiven in his sight. So that's faith alone, but now we're seeing the implications and the the outworking of what that means when we have been justified by faith. And so chapters 5 through 8 are all about this idea of assurance of that faith, an assurance of the grace that God has given us through faith. And here it is assuring us that we are God's children on the basis in this verse of the love of God that's been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? We'll, we'll, we'll look at it. We'll see. We'll see. You, you may have noticed, you may not have noticed, in verses 1 through 5 that there are these three things that are spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and a few other places in Paul too. Faith and hope and love. We're coming to love today, but it started out talking about faith. We've been justified by faith. That, that faith is from the moment we first believe, we have peace with God. And, and, and when we have peace with God, even our suffering drives us closer to God and assures us that we are his. That is faith. We have peace with God. And that, that suffering and that being going through those trials and being tested, it said in the verses that we looked at last week that that builds up our hope. That hope, then, it says now, does not put us to shame. And it's built on love. So we have faith, and we have hope, and we have love. And we'll talk about that more toward the end as well. What it says here, first of all, is that in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. Now, what is hope? Hope is, I wrote out this definition this morning, and I like it. Hope is the sure truth of God's promises about our future in Christ. Hope is the sure truth of God's promises about our future in Christ. It's not a maybe kind of thing. It's not a, it might fall through, but I hope it doesn't. Hope is that surety. Because God has said it, and God is God, that is true, and it's coming. And hope especially has to do with our eternal glorification in the eternal presence of the glorified Christ. That we will be there standing complete in the face of Jesus forever and ever. 
That's the main place where we set our hope. And it says here that that hope does not put us to shame. Some translations of this might use the word disappoint there. And that's the idea. It's not going to fall through. It's not going to be the kind of thing where you end up ashamed that you believed these things. It's not the kind of thing where you end up disappointed that actually, no, it didn't come true. Our hope was in vain. No, it says here, hope does not put us to shame. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with where the Seventh-day Adventist movement came out of. It started out with a group called the Millerites. The Millerites were a cult uh, led by a man named William Miller. And William Miller's prediction was that Jesus was going to return on October 22nd, 1844, which coincidentally is exactly six years to the day before this church was founded. But on October 22nd, 1844, which is the day, you know, William Miller had gone all the way through the book of Daniel and, and worked out the 70 weeks and, and lined everything out just perfectly. And, and he said, this is the day that Jesus will return. On that day, a bunch of his followers had sold everything that they had or given away everything that they had. They had quit their jobs. They were just waiting and saying, this is the day that this will happen because their cult leader had said so. And of course, here we are standing here in 2022. We know that Jesus did not return on October 22nd, 1844. And people all over the world began to mock and to shame the Millerites. And some of those Millerites who had done this, they were so incredibly disappointed. There was one man who was part of this group who wrote in his diary that he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink anything, he just lay in his bed for days weeping over the disappointment that none of this had proven true. Now, of course, later, others came along and came up with explanations why William Miller was really right. That's, why, that's where the Seventh-day Adventist movement came from. As I said, they said that Jesus moved into a different part of heaven on that day, and they twist the gospel around in order to meet that sort of a thing. It's not a movement that anybody should ever get involved in. But I tell you that not because I'm just trying to warn you against that movement. I tell you that because we have seen these groups that are following a different gospel where they are put to shame, that their hope does not come through. And that day is known now as the great disappointment. Well, will we be greatly disappointed? Will, will we, who are trusting in the words of the Bible the gospel that's here, the way that it's laid out for us in Scripture? Are we going to be vindicated in the end? Or are we going to stand on the day of judgment and be acquitted like we're hoping? Or are we going to be put to shame? Is our faith going to prove to be in vain? The answer is no. Your faith will not prove to be in vain. Now, I'm not going to tell you what day Jesus is coming back, and it's not because I'm keeping it secret from you. It's because nobody knows. And Jesus said that very directly. So we don't know exactly when this is going to happen. And yet, we know that God's truth is God's truth. And it's not going to disappoint. The Bible has said over and over and over that it's God's enemies who are going to be put to shame. Not God's people. Not those who repent and rest their souls in Christ said this in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, verse 16. says, all of them are put to shame and confounded. 
The makers of idols go into confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. In Isaiah 49, he says, verse 23, with their faces to the ground, that's God's enemies, with their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. It carries over into the New Testament too. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hope in Christ is not going to disappoint. It will not be put to shame. In the future, we're not going to be ashamed, but I want you to know also that in the present, we should not be ashamed. We should not be ashamed in the present. Here's what it said early on in the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Believer, I want to know, when you shrink back from sharing the gospel, why is that? Why is it when, when you have that opportunity to share the gospel and the tug on your heart, I need to tell this person about Christ, and you shrink back, why? Why do you shrink back? Well, there's lots of reasons, and we're not going to get into all of those reasons, but one of the reasons is because we have not set our hope where it needs to be. When we have our hope in Christ, and when we have our hope growing, when we are setting the eyes of our hearts on Christ and the eternity that we have secured in Christ and the glory of Christ that we will behold face to face, do you know what hope does? It drives out shame. Hope drives out shame. And so when your eyes are off of the prize of Christ, your shame tends to grow. You tend to want to apologize more for not being like the world. You tend to want to shrink back from seeming like the crazy person who would just always say that others are going to hell and need to repent. By the way, we don't say that because we hate people. We say that because we love people. We were going to hell and needed to repent. You need to bring people the love of Jesus Christ, but if you want to grow in your confidence in Christ, if you want to not shrink back, we need to make a practice of setting the eyes of our hearts on Christ. Do you know one of the best things that you can do to not be ashamed of the gospel, to grow as an evangelist in your personal life? It is spend personal time with the Lord on a daily basis. Spend personal time reading and meditating on the Scripture and praying to God, praying the Scriptures back to Him. Spend time adoring Christ. Spend time loving God personally. And I think you'll find that as you do that, so many of the questions that you have about how can I share the gospel, they'll start to fade away because you'll just be excited to do it. And you won't be ashamed. We need to set the eyes of our hearts on Christ and hope drives out shame. He's already said in this, in this passage, in the verses that we were in last week, verses 3 and 4, that one of the ways that that happens, one of the ways that God grows our hope, 
is through taking us through sufferings. That, that suffering uh, produces character, and that character produces hope, right? Or the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And I just want to say, I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. We've seen this happen in people's lives, but I was thinking as, as I looked at this, hope does not put us to shame, not being ashamed of the gospel, that hope being grown through suffering. You know who I just can't stop thinking about when I see that? Terry Quinn, our, our sister in Christ, member of this church, one of our shut-ins, Terry Quinn. If you came to this church after Terry had to go into uh, assisted living and you've never met Terry, you're just missing out, okay? But Terry has been through so much. And I know if, if, if she was listening live right now, she'd be so embarrassed I'm talking about it, but I'm doing it anyway. Terry has suffered so, so much. And you know what she has done in that? She has looked to Jesus. And, and she has grown in her faith. And you talk to her, and she's just got Scripture pouring out of her mouth. And do you know what she's doing in that assisted living place? She's sharing the gospel with people all the time. I mean, this, she, God has taken her through suffering, and that suffering has produced endurance. And that endurance has produced character, and that character has produced hope, and that hope has not put her to shame. She is not ashamed of the gospel, and it's such a beautiful thing. She, she told me, now I don't want to just preach about Terry, but I'm going to tell you anyway. She told me, she said, you know, you've got these guys who come in here and they do these Bible studies, and they talk about things like the dimensions of the ark. And I just say, these people are about to die Tell them the gospel. <laughs> oh, love Terry. But guys, we need to grow in our love for Christ so that we would grow in hope and not be ashamed and not be ashamed of the gospel. And it will not put us to shame, this hope that we have. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is where this comes from. The love of God is going to confirm that hope. And then we're going to camp out on this for a little while. It says, hope does not put us to shame. And it says, because. It says, here is the reason that hope does not put us to shame. Do you want to know why hope doesn't put us to shame? Because God's love, or I would rather it be translated there, the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. The love of God. You know where that love of God comes from? Well, it says right here in this verse, through the Holy Spirit. Do you know why the love of God has to be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit? It's because nobody naturally loves God. He's laid that out pretty clearly already back in chapter 3 where he says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He said that pretty clearly. He says it again in Romans 8, 7, where he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That doesn't sound like the love of God, does it? And we need to know, every single one of us, that was our starting place in our sinful nature that we got from Adam and lived out in our sinful lives and actions that poured out from our ugly, sinful hearts. We didn't love God. But do you know who can put the love of God in our hearts? The Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit is the one who pours out the love of God into our hearts. Robert Haldane, he wrote a, just an excellent commentary on Romans wrote back in the 1800s. But I'm just going to quote what he says here. He said, All men naturally hate God, and it is only when they have a view of his love thus given by the promised comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, and behold his love and the gift of his Son that they repent and love God. Though sinners should hear 10,000 times of the love of God and the gift of his Son, they are never properly affected by it till the Holy Spirit enters into their hearts, until love for him is produced by the truth through the Spirit. It is the office of the Spirit to convert and sanctify those for whom Christ died. I want to ask this. If you're an unbeliever and you happen to be here today and you know that you're an unbeliever, your faith is not in Christ, you're, not, you're resting on something other than Jesus for your salvation, maybe your own goodness or something like that. I, I want to know, do, do you have any idea of the kind of love that is offered to you in Christ? Do you have any idea of it? Maybe you've thought to yourself of the kind of love that you could offer to God, but that's not going to cut it. Do you have any idea of the love that is offered to you, personally, sinner? If you don't get that, then ask the Holy Spirit to help you get it. Ask him, because it's the Holy Spirit who does this. It's the Holy Spirit who opened up Lydia's ears to hear and receive the gospel back in Acts. It's the Holy Spirit who will do it now. Uh, don't, don't just look for an, a head Mind kind of understanding, yes, I understand that God is love. That's true, but it's got to be something more than that. You don't even just need the bigger understanding that God's love has been poured out on the cross of Christ for sinners, which it has. He died for sinners. But what, what you need is you need a personal, overwhelming, invigorating understanding in your heart of God's love for you, guilty sinner that Jesus would come and die for guilty sinners. And you need the joy of receiving that love, and that can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit applying that to your heart. So if you don't have that, take time, maybe even right now, and just pray that the Holy Spirit would do that work in your heart to grant you to know the love of God in Christ that he would pour out into your heart. And believer, I want to know, Do you understand God's love for you? Are you assured of God's love? And what you need to do is you need to thank the Holy Spirit for doing that. He's the one who pours it out into our hearts. Let's think about what that means. It says, uh, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's been poured out. Some translations translate that differently. It's a funny little word uh, to try to wrap your mind around. The King James says, shed abroad in our hearts, which kind of gives you this idea of it's not just poured out, but it's going everywhere. It's going all over the place. And it's it's not just that it's been poured out, but it's been poured out. Uh, One translation says, spilled all over the place. You wonder what translation is that? It's the Wigginton Standard Version. God's love is poured out, spilled all over the place into our hearts. The way he says that, the way he says that word, it's that it, it, it has been done already, believer. 
but it's not something that you just leave in the past. It keeps on working in you. It keeps on having its effect. It has been poured out into our hearts. You remember when Mary Magdalene poured out that bottle of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? Do you remember what the disciples said about that? They were just in shock. This expensive bottle of perfume, something like a year's worth of wages or more, just poured out on the ground over Jesus' feet. Why, why were they so shocked? Because when it's poured out, it's poured out. You can't get into the dirt and squeeze that perfume back into the bottle and sell it. It's just gone. They thought, well, this is just wasted. It's too extravagant. It's too much. Well, you know what God has done extravagantly and too much? He has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's love has been poured out, and he's not going to put it back in the bottle. And there is a whole lot of it. And it spills all over the place in your heart, believer. He has done this prodigally for us. I'm not going to say recklessly, like that terrible song says. But I'm going to say prodigally. What prodigal means is, is what the prodigal son did before he came back to his father, where he went out and he wasted everything. Now, I'm not saying that God wastes anything, but, but God gives this love in this way where he is not holding anything back. He pours out his love toward us. That love is something, if you don't have a concept of how big that love is, then you need to pray that you would. And I pray that you would. And Paul prayed that you would here in, in Ephesians chapter 3, where he says that he prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. However big of an idea you have of how much God loves his people, it's not big enough. And he pours that love into our hearts. It's something that only God can do. It's something that God does that is bigger than anything that man can do. God can change not just the outside of a person. God can change the inside of a person. God can change not just behaviors that would be modified and, and appearances that, that would come out, not just outward fruit. God can change the root of the heart. God can go into the inside of who you are and clean you up from the inside out by his love. It's been poured out into our hearts, and it must be poured out into our hearts for us to be saved. God knows, excuse me, God makes us to know his love in an inward, emotional, affectionate, heart-stirring sense. If you have a concept of your relationship with God that it ought to be emotionless and based purely on your understanding of theological concepts, then I don't know how you know the love of God. We need those things to, to proclaim the truth to us, but boy, they ought to stir our hearts. We, if you know Christ, you know the love that he would pour out for us, that it changes our hearts, that our hearts would cry out, Abba, Father. What kind of love has been poured into our hearts? Well, it's the love of God. 
I said just a second ago that I wish that the ESV, instead of translating it as God's love, had been translated as the love of God, which is done in some other translations, the love of God. Because it doesn't exactly say here whether it's God's love for us or our love for God, whether God is the subject or the object of the love. And I think it's both. I think it's both. The love of God that it's talking about here would be both God's love for us and our love for God. All of it is what gets poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love for us. Let's think about that for a second. We need to be assured by the Holy Spirit that God loves us. Are you assured by the Holy Spirit that God loves you? Well, listen, listen to these things. Romans 5.8. God shows, this is coming up next week, by the way. God shows us his love or shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Very similar to 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. You know what you see there is, is you see Jesus died for our sins, believer. Jesus died for your sins. Think about that. Look to the cross and be assured of God's love. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look to the fact that God gives eternal life by faith alone. And just let your heart receive and rejoice in the love of God toward you as you believe in Jesus. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what, what, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. You were not born a child of God. You were born a child of the flesh. You were born, as Jesus put it, almost sounds too harsh, but he said it, a child of the devil. But God can adopt us into his family, bring us from unbelief to belief, from children of the devil to children of God who he loves with an eternal love and an eternal inheritance and the glory of Christ forever and ever. Think about the fact of being adopted as his children, believer, and let that grow your appreciation. God loves me. The love of God poured into our hearts. We need assurance that God loves us. You know why we need that? It's because our love is small. And our love is unsteady and wavering. God's love is big. And God's love is steady and unmovable. It is gargantuan. It is unsearchable, the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God toward us in Christ. We need to know his love for those times when we're suffering. Maybe we are experiencing God's love as tough love. You know what? God does that. It says in Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. He says in Revelation three nineteen, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You need to know the love of God for you, that no matter what you go through, God would love you in Jesus. That is the truth for believers in Christ. If you're an unbeliever, you need to know that the love of God is freely offered to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Also, 
when it says the love of God poured into our hearts, I think it also applies to our love for God. Why do I think that? Because other scriptures really sound that way. Even other scriptures right here in this section of Romans that runs from chapter 5 through chapter 8. Listen to a few of these scriptures. 1 John 4.19, it says, We love because he first loved us. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If we have received the love of God toward us, then as a result of that, we then love God. And of course, we would love our neighbor as well. Not perfectly. You won't love God and neighbor perfectly until you're in the presence of Christ and every bit of sin is gone. But we have come to love God because he first loved us. Here's some other things it says. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God into our hearts, do you know what he makes our hearts do? He makes our hearts love God as our Father to where we would cry out to him, Abba, Father, to know that he's the one who takes care of us, that we are his children. Mm. It says the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see that? As we want to stand assured, as we want to see the the brand of Christ on our hearts and not just on the outside, here's what this is talking about in Romans 5.5, the love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit to be assured God loves me. God is my Father. I love God in Jesus Christ. You know what this adds up to? Joy. Actual emotional joy. When, when you know the love of God and your heart is turned to love him, I lo- uh, John Murray, he's a, a commentator, a great theologian from the 20th century, very solidly reformed guy and writes like a solidly reformed guy in this very academic, stingy kind of language. Listen to this academic, stingy language about this emotional joys. This confluence would make anything other than exultant rejoicing incongruous. Even when you're writing like that, you can't help but just jump out of your chair for joy when you understand what this says about the love of God being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Mm, I love it. It should make us really, really happy to know that God loves us and that he's turned our hearts to love him. Here's the way Jesus put it in John 7. It says, he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Mm, I love it. That's what it says next too, that the Holy Spirit who has poured this love into our hearts It's not just that he has done something over here and left. It says that the Holy Spirit himself has been given to us. You hear that? The end of verse 5. Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He hasn't just dropped love on us and left. He comes to indwell us, believer. Every believer. This is promised in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, which is something that happens when you love God. It's been promised in the Old Testament. It's been given in Christ. It says in Romans 8 verse 9, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There are some branches of Christianity where uh, I don't quite get where they get this, but they, they think that there are Christians walking around who don't have the Holy Spirit, who are actually believers, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet. That concept is, is wrong. <laughs> it's wrong. I think it comes out of a misunderstanding of what God was doing in the book of Acts as he demonstrated that the Spirit was being given to not just Jews but also to Samaritans and to Gentiles as you go through that book. But the Bible makes it plain. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, which means anyone who belongs to him has the Holy Spirit. He has been given to us. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Right there. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He has given us his love through the Holy Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit, by the way, who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. He's not less God than God the Father. He's not less God than God the Son. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. We're not going to get into a whole thing about understanding the Trinity right here, but he is God who has come to indwell us. The Holy Spirit is the best gift that we can receive. Best gift. Jesus even said this in John 16, verse 7. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Isn't that weird to think Jesus would say, it's better for me to go away? Wouldn't you think that we could follow God better and love God more if, if Jesus were standing here in the middle of our worship service? Well, I've got to tell you, Jesus went to a lot of worship services, and some of them ended up with everybody in the crowd wanting to stone him to death. But Jesus says, if I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. He says it's even better to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit than to be in the presence of the incarnated Christ in those days during his earthly ministry. Mm, it's amazing. I want you to listen to this parable that Jesus told and listen to the twist at the end. This is in Luke 11. He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give, here's the twist, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love the way that Luke records that saying of Jesus because he doesn't just say, give good things to those who ask him. He says, the best good thing that God gives, the Holy Spirit. Ugh. The Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into our hearts and the Holy Spirit himself is given to us. 
maybe you would think to yourself, well, I wish I had, a, I had different gifts. I wish I had different spiritual gifts. I wish I could do what that guy over there does. I, I, I wish that I had this. I wish that I had that. Believer, you have the best gift already, which is the Holy Spirit himself, the Spirit of Christ in you, making your heart cry out, Abba, Father, in love. Mm. As we come to the end of, of this section of just the first few verses of chapter 5, I, I want to emphasize again, this it goes through and shows us faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Just like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Hmm. In, in verse 1 of Romans 5, talked about faith. Faith is the means of our salvation. But do you know that we're not going to have faith forever? You know why not? Because one day our faith will become sight. We'll stand in the face of Jesus. You won't have to have faith anymore. You'll just see Jesus. And do you know we have hope right now? We are hoping for that eternity, that, that being in the face of Christ. But we won't have to hope for it when we're there. We'll be there. It's going to be fulfilled. Faith will become sight. Hope will be fulfilled. But do you know what happens with love? It said in 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. Love never ends. It's the substance, put it this way, faith is the means of our salvation, hope is the end of our salvation, but love is the substance of our salvation. You know what we're going to have in heaven? We're going to have a world of love. Jonathan Edwards wrote a booklet called Heaven is a World of Love. When we're in heaven, we're going to have perfect love between us and God. God's love toward us is already perfect, and our love toward him will be perfected. When we're in heaven, we will have nothing but interactions of love with everybody we meet. We, we are so not used to that here. <laughs> we are so prone not to love each other. It's so easy. But when we're there, we won't want to sin anymore. And there will be no hatred. There will be no sin. It will be a world of love. And you know what we want? We want it to begin here. Eternal life begins now, and it begins with the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit as we look to the cross of Jesus and believe. Do you want to have full assurance of salvation? Do you want to have full hope? Do you want to have full knowledge that you won't stand ashamed and disappointed on the day of judgment? Do you want to have joy? What you need to do is you need to look to the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I'll just close by reading again what, God, what Jesus said in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. God, we don't yet comprehend the fullness of the height and the breadth and the depth and the length of the love of Christ. But we do know your love. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, all of us who believe. And so I pray that you would help us to know that love more and more deeply. I pray that you would grow us in love. God, I pray that you would take away all of the things in our hearts that are not... Uh, 
in, in alignment with that love for you and love for neighbor. Forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and help us not to walk in a false form of righteousness that would have hatred, um, but to walk in love. Love according not to the world's definition of love, but according to the beautiful standards that you've laid out by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. God, I pray for those who are here who are not believers. Father, it's possible that they may have some sort of an emotional reaction to the idea of the love of God and yet still walk away lost in their sins. So God, I pray that you would point them instead to the cross of Jesus where he died for sinners to pay the full penalty for our sin. And I pray that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just grant them some sort of a man-made feeling of love, but grant them the power of the Holy Spirit to make them born again and to know the love of God and truth. God, grant them to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Father, I pray that as we go, that you would make us grow in our hope to point our eyes on Christ, not to be ashamed of the gospel. And I pray that you would grant us to walk in love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.